Do you have, when you get a, a, a script or you start working on a project, do you come up with your ideas about the visual style in terms of the palette, the colours that you would use, or is that something that develops the moment you start talking to a director? Uh, that, that starts with the moment you start talking to the director, really. And that starts in combination, there's the sort of, tr- well, I say a trio, of the director, production designer, DP, but now I'd say the visual effects supervisor will also be involved in that on a film which is visual effects heavy like this. And so those... Those colour decisions and light decisions are made at that st- at a very early stage, and then they are developed from there. And the great thing about, I suppose, about concept work, which I, I, I'm for this sort of film, a big fan of, is that if you're a concept artist, you, there, there are there's very little to limit you in terms of, and and they generally, uh, I would encourage a concept artist not to be limited by or do we think that can be done, is to just let your imagination play and say, what could this be? And to really let it flow like that. And then then you, I think you also, with that concept work, you set a very high bar for everyone to achieve. And so, so I, will be in, I would be involved in that concept work at an early stage. Uh, it's predominantly led by the designer, I would say, and then it's presented to the director. But I would... I usually like to have a quite a close relationship with a, a designer. I think that's a vital bond that you need to have. So, so those discussions about colour, uh, density, contrast will happen at that stage. The, the, those ideas will be formulated there and then executed later on. And then probably changed in the DI. <laughs> <laughs> There's this sort of tactility to it as though this character, this Nicole Kidman character, is experiencing everything for the first time. And I'm just curious about the conversations that you had with Rowan Joffe about placing us both outside of this woman's world and also inside her head. It was very much uh, the character Christine's film, so that it had to be her journey. So you had to experience... The feeling was that you had to experience everything through her. So at times we felt that things needed to be very vibrant and clear, but at other times in her more confused states, we wanted them to become more muted. So there was a definite arc to that, and there's a definite use of colour within the film uh, to do that. And there's also, a lot of times with a a film like that, we wanted there to be, from the beginning to the end, a journey. There's an awakening for the character. So there's actually, although it's very subtle, there's a journey of image from beginning to end within the film where... Things start very muted, and colour is introduced as as we colour and contrast are introduced as we go through the film, as she becomes as her memory starts to come back to her. And also, the sequences in the house um, I really like because the way that we zoom through walls, and I'm just curious about the structure of the production design on that. Well, I think with the film, the difference. All right, so we we look at the difference between something like Guardians and. Uh, before I go to sleep, um, I spent we're on before I go to sleep. I spent probably a period of ten intensive days with Rowan, sitting at a desk, going through every single scene from beginning to end, and discussing first of all discussing what the scene was about, how we wanted it to look, what we felt the shots were. You know, there was a there was a a breakdown from the beginning to the end of the scene, a very intense period where Rome would take notes and, there were, and, a, and a kind of a shot list was 
created. It wasn't... I'm sort of adverse to having a very precise shot list for a film. Like, when you've got really good actors, you don't... I'm not so keen on having a story where you have to be over there for this scene, really, because we've... Four months ago at a desk, we decided we wanted to do this <laughs> shot. Um, I don't think that approach particularly works, particularly when you've got very good cast. You really want to let them play. But, a, but a very much a design was put in place at that point. I find with the, the bigger budget films, that, that, peer, that doesn't really exist, that period. That, that, that's the marked difference, I'd say, between... So if I'm looking at the two films you've seen so far, whereas something like Guardians of the Galaxy, I will arrive... In my pre-production period, a lot of the previous work will be done. You know, my involvement in construction of the scenes is very different. Whereas something like Before I Go to Sleep, there's a very intense involvement between director and cinematographer. And I think that's sort of slightly to do, you know, I think on the bigger films, particularly nowadays when they're very, very visual effects heavy, there's an erosion of the role of the cinematographer which is which I find slightly worrying um, but that certainly exists because whole sequences are being designed and uh, decisions are being made before you've even set foot in the door and I, do, I, I personally think cinematographers have got more to offer than that and I find that films when you have an intense collaboration between director and cinematographer I think that's a very beneficial thing and, I, and it does worry me that that relationship on the particularly on the larger films is being I, I think eroded I don't think that's particularly to do with it being a visual effects heavy film I just mm. think it's it's a different process you're you're as a cinematographer a, a, a small cog in a big wheel whereas you're a slightly bigger cog in a slightly smaller wheel <laughs> <laughs> on, on the uh, on the smaller films um, that's not to say that they're any less satisfying to make than the others because there are there is a, the, where there's a downside. There's also a very positive side with the the larger budget films where you can you can walk onto a set and say, well, what would I like to do here? Well, I'd like to put a hundred kilowatt light up there on that window. So they'll say, okay, we can. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and that's ultimately possible, you know. Um, but, but, sorry, I, I've digressed a little bit. Just going back to sort of before I go to sleep and that particular film. Um, if you watch that film, it, it's quite an interesting film because it has, it has no fixed point of reference. It's a film with no fixed point of reference. I mean, until the end, when you... At the very end of the film, you see a sort of uh, a generic view of the London skyline. But up to that point, you're, it's all, I'd almost defy you. It could be shot in any language and be anywhere. It has no particular reference points because that is where the lead character is. She has no reference points, so that was a, a deliberate decision, which, which is actually very different from the book because the book was very specific about... I think, if I remember rightly, the book was set in Alexander Palace. Or is it Alexander Palace? Alexander Park. Alexander Park. Um, in North London. It was very London-specific, whereas... Rowan and I decided to take it away from that um, uh, because we felt it... We wanted it very much to follow her character arc and where she was within the film. It's also interesting for a thriller. It's, 
it's actually individuals, not just the music, which you normally associate with the thing that unnerves you in a film. That, like Hitchcock, he'd open most of his films not with an establishing shot, but a close-up on something. So it, you would already think, where the hell am I? And you get that with this, I think, visually, right from the outset, you have this sense of, as an audience member, not knowing exactly where you are. And that, in itself, is unnerving. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the, what you need to do in a thriller is you need to unsettle people. Mm. And I think, I think the film does that successfully. I think, I think um, the film slightly falls behind that in the terms of its plausibility. But, but there's not a lot you could do about that. I mean, that's the idea, the central core of the idea. But I think the film works very well technically in achieving that. Going from the sublime to the ridiculously mythic, 2012's Wrath of the Titans by uh, Jonathan Lieberman. Perhaps for anyone who doesn't know what previous is, you could just sort of explain exactly what that is and then how you would interact with it in this... Pre-visualisation. So generally what happens with the pre-visualisation is that, first of all, ideally, and this isn't always the case, is that you would storyboard a sequence and then um, the sequence is then given to the visual effects department, who the pre-visualisation people work under, and it is um, basically computer animation, 3D computer animation, um, where the storyboards are basically made into a real Im- a moving image with animated characters. Um, and they're very s- specific, so you will program into that, you will say, all right, I'm going to shoot this on a 27mm the camera height. So there is, for everything, there is also tech viz. So, you, so if you do a previs shot, there'll also be tech viz with, you, with it, which will show you the height of the camera, what lens it's on. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a real difficult one for me because I, uh, I, I love it and I hate it. Um, I hate it because I have an a sort of a knee-jerk reaction to walking into a, a specific scene and being told, right, the camera's going to be over here at three foot high on a 27mm, and this is what's going to happen. And um, for me, the filmmaking process in an ideal world is more organic than that. Um, I can understand it when you... Generally, it tends to... It will, Originally, whenever I came across it before, it, it, it tended to be done for complex set pieces. Uh, where multiple units would be shooting those pieces. So stuff had to go to second unit, and it gave a very clear guideline of what was going to be. And also the idea behind it is you weren't shooting endless bits of coverage and then putting it together in the edit. You had a very concise idea of where the cut was, what the shot was going to be. Um, and in, in complex sequences, that can be very useful. Um, at the same time, um, it's very restrictive. Um, and you tend to end up shooting to a cut, which, if, say, you've got a previous thing and it says, all right, at this point, that person's going to move from there to there and then the cut's going to happen. That's what you end up shooting. They get to there and you call cut. Whereas, to be honest, in the, in the, in the normal filmmaking process, you'd let that sequence roll and then you'd let the editor make that decision. You know, And I feel that you tend to end up shooting to the previous, and then, and then that becomes... Then the editor gets it, and that's very limited, you know. Um, and nowadays I find that previs tends to get used more and more, so there are sequences which don't necessarily lend themselves to pre-visualisation that are being prevised. And, uh, yeah, I, I have a... You know, 
I have some opinions about that. <laughs> so your, your favourite mode of working would be to do as much as you can in camera, well, and then what you can't do in camera. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, ideally for me the previs would work like as a storyboard used to, which was yeah. storyboard would give you in most scenarios and with most directors the storyboard is a guideline from which to. So you'd say, well, that's the idea, but when you get to the set, actually, we're going to push this along a bit further, or we're going to do this, or, and that would be, it wouldn't give you a specific lens or where the camera was going to be. Um, and a lot of that work is done, I have to say, a lot of the pre-visualisation work is done so that the visual effects department can start work. Early. So they'll start work on that shot before you've even shot it. They're constructing elements for that shot. And that is one of the ideas for it, because usually the time frame for these films, you know, they, they, you're always pushed up against visual effects. Whenever you do one of these sort of films, you're always, at the last week of the, you know, the film's about to come out, you're still waiting for visual effects shots to come in to be graded. So you're always pushed up against it with visual effects. So, so they're trying to get work done early. So, so I, I understand it from that viewpoint. But I still find it... I mean, when I first started... The first sort of film I did where I came up against Previs, and they were doing it in this other room. I think it was when I did Stardust, they were sort of, oh, we got a Previs thing. Was, I've never heard of bloody Previs before. It's like, oh, what, what are they doing in there? And I went into this room, this dark room, these guys sitting in it on computers, and they were constructing shots that we were never possibly capable of shooting. <laughs> no, never, I should say. So they were constructing shots, and I thought, oh, that's all quite amusing. And I took no no, and then... Uh, and uh, took no notice of it whatsoever, <laughs> um, which which was a mistake, really, because then you, what I didn't realise then, and that was the first time I got ready, is you then get to the set and you say, well, well, we should do this, this is great, and they go, oh, no, the previs is we're doing this. And you think, but surely this is better. Oh, no, we've got to do the previs, and well, why? So, well, we've already started work on that shot. And you go, oh. <laughs> so, so that's... You can see where I'm going. With can, you, can, you see, <laughs> yeah. can you see the landscape changing in terms of your role? For instance, like Roger Deakins, as well as his work with the Coens and many other directors, he's been involved as a visual consultant on Wally on the recent How to Train Your Dragon 2. And so he's going with the director to locations and actually capturing a visual. Well, that's a different role, you see, because at that point, Roger is involved in the construction yeah. of the pre-visualisation. You know, I, I, I think one of the issues with that, usually the, the previs is done under the direction of the director. So the director who is in there will oversee the previs. But sometimes the director is a very busy man. You know, and how much is he overseeing? So a lot of the the construct of those shots is is being done by guys in who are previs guys in a, in a room who, who have no experience of being on the film set or the practicalities of what that involves, and a lot of times you come up across a shot which starts up there, comes down there in two seconds, looks up there and twists around and goes, and you think, and you look at it and you think, well, you know, how are we physically going to achieve that? You know, and, and, and you, <laughs> you'll say to the previous guy, well, you yeah, know, that's great, but, you know, how, how do you think we can do that? They go, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's your problem. I've just done it on my computer. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's an issue. Let's go back before um, previous and and you're sort of starting out. You're at um, Samuelson's Camera House. Yeah. And can you talk about your journey from there, um, eventually becoming a cinematographer, and why it was cinematography you wanted to sort of work in? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have to confess it's entirely nepotistic. Um, my father was a cinematographer. But I, I my... So, no, not entirely. I, I wasn't great at school. Um, I discovered skateboarding at a very sort of young age, and that kind of put an end to my academic <laughs> ambitions at school. Um, and, you know, I, was, I wasn't really doing a lot till 18, and my father was living in the States, and I went out to visit him, and I got a job as a, as a camera trainee on a, a made-for-TV movie that he was shooting out in New York. And I was straight away, that was it for me, really. I knew, you know, I, I guess I'd been waiting for some sort of sense of direction, and that gave it to me. But I'd always been interested in photography, my father and I. My father had a, a little lab set up at, upstairs where we used to live, and we used to process... I used to take photographs, and we used to process them and print them at home, develop the neg, negative. We don't see that much anymore. But we used to develop the neg and print those out. Um, and I think that's where it stemmed from. I, mean, I remember going to... Uh, when, I le- when I did leave school, and I went to see... I, I, I don't know if they have them any careers officers. Do they have careers officers anymore? I went to see a careers officer, and he said, he said well, what, do you, what are you interested in? Oh, well, uh, f- photography, I said. Like, and he goes, oh, right, OK. <laughs> so he got me a job, so I had a job. My first job was at a photographic printer, and I, I remember when I was standing in front, there was a dryer... So the print, I wasn't involved in any of the developing or printing. The prints would come out like that and I'd put them through the dryer. On the machine, they used to go, they'd take about five minutes to get them. And then I'd put them in an out tray. And then the next one, I'm going to put them in the out tray. And I used to do that every day. I thought, this isn't quite what I had in mind when I did the job. So I was lucky, really. So I went and worked my phone. And then I came back here and I had to the UK. And I had no real contact base because my father was in the States. So... I was, and then that was in the days of the union, uh, and you needed to, the ACTT, and you needed to be have a union ticket to work in the industry. It was very much a closed shop, um, so you needed to get a union ticket. And in order to get a union ticket, you had to be working in the industry. So it was a sort of, well, what do you do about that? Um, and there were there were various ways to get it. You could work in a camera equipment house, or you could be a projectionist. Was another one. Um, uh, or there was a trainee system. So I, I worked as a trainee on a couple of films, and then. Ken Russell? I did. I, I did. Well, no, I worked as a loader for Ken Russell. No, I worked with Nicholas Rowe as a trainee, actually, on a film called Insignificance, was my first camera trainee role. Good film. Um, with great DP, Peter Hannon. Um, but yes, that. Um, but I always remember my, my fir- first job. So I came back and there was, and I couldn't get anything, I couldn't get a break anywhere. And there was a, I read this advert in Time Out and it said, uh, we need actors for a National Film School production. So I rang them up and I said, well, I'm not an actor, but, um, and I'd been a trainee, you know, so I thought, well, I could be your um, camera assistant. And they said, sure, we start shooting uh, tomorrow. Can you, can you come on? And, you know, I'd, I'd been a trainee for one film. They said, I said, oh, so what camera is it? Um, they said, oh, it's uh, Ari SR. And I said, oh, great. So I went to a camera house in London. It used to be called AKA, which is where my dad, my father used to have work. And I learned to load a... This is probably getting a bit dull, this. But uh, I, I learned to uh, load an, an Ari S on. I turned up the next day and it was an art on, which was a really complex one. I looked at it and no idea how to do it. Because they'd run the, apparently they'd run the SR over with their van. The day before, <laughs> <laughs> which is very natural. Um, um, let, let's go on to the, 
your first feature, and it's your, your first film that you worked with, Matthew Vaughan, um, Layer Cake. Something struck me when I, I watched that film at the time, the popularity of gangster films at that point in time. This was an incredibly elegant film in terms of the way it was shot, the symmetry of the shots, that went completely against the grain of what we were seeing at that point in time. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's such a long... I, you know, I haven't seen that film since probably the premiere. Um, yeah, uh, interesting enough, I, I look at it now, and uh, in fact the last two films were, they're all shot on film. I look at that and I think, oh, I miss you in your film. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, th- that was another film, another film that was very well planned. And very well, yeah. you know, all those shots. There's nothing there by accident. Every shot was planned in that sequence. Not storyboarded, but listed and talked about and discussed. It was, yeah, it was a stylish film. I think we wanted it to be that. We wanted it to be that. It's just such a long time ago to remember the processes that we came by that is very difficult. Um, what I do know about that is, you know, this was that was Matthew's first film as a director. Yeah. Um, we had Daniel was very, very influential in that film in terms of, you know, put, he put a lot of work into that Daniel um, as well. You know, and there was very much a, a creative core on it about, you know, and everything was discussed and worked out. And it's interesting film, watching it now. It actually feels like a calling card for Bond. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it very much was, yeah. But I don't think it was intended as that. <laughs> Maybe for Matthew. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Any questions at this point? I was just curious about your transition. Your transition from camera yeah. assistant to DP. Yeah. How long yeah. it took and were you shooting while you were assistant? Yeah, um, I, I was lucky. It was, it was relatively quick. But, well, yeah, I while I was assisting, I shot a lot of short films. I, I basically at one point, and fortunately, I mean, I've got five children now, but at that point I didn't, and um, every lighting opportunity that came along, I took it. Whether So I, I was working as a, a focus puller, but if I, if I had, for instance, uh, two weeks on a commercial or a day doing a short film, I would take that day, and I just made every decision to light everything I could. And I, and I was very lucky, because I fell in with um, there was a very... And I mean, there, there was. I say there still is. There's a, there's a great um, commercials director called Malcolm Venville, who um, is a lovely man, and um, he he was a stills photographer, and he came, he started to direct commercials, and basically I started to work with him, and and I was very much his focus puller, but I I took a lot of the early on, I took a lot of the lighting responsibility. So he'd say, look, and he would give a brief. He say, I want this to look like this, and myself and the gaffer would do it, and then I. Eventually, I started lighting for Malcolm, and um, that was, you know, I'd got a lot of experience with him, and, and he, his work was always very visual. So so it started like that, really, and I think it was, I mean, for anyone who is on that journey, I just, light, I just did as much as I could whenever the opportunity came to, to light and to operate and to get behind that camera. I took it, whether, you know... And it didn't, in a way, it didn't matter what it was. You know, I did some, you know, some pretty poor stuff as well. I, 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 you know, but every, you learn as much from the bad things as you do from the good. You, know? you learn as much from your errors. The interesting thing is, looking back at sort of the stuff I did early, I, I look at it and I see, I see some naivety and 
Can't, but 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 I, I really like it because I think I look at it. I think well, yeah, you took a bit of a risk there, you know. And you think you think you know. But but a sort of lack of knowledge creates brave work. I'm always interested in looking at work from people who are starting out because it tends to that you tend to take. I, I think not. It's not greater risk, but from sometimes you come over encumbered by by experience. And it, the experience will dictate what you're going to do every time, whereas a fresh mind is very interesting. I find that very much in directors as well. When you're working with directors, I, I made the mistake very early on in my career. I remember working with one particular director uh, when I was working in commercials. We approached uh, a particular shot, and he wanted it done another way, and, which I thought was particularly absurd. And, uh, and because I had seen this particular shot done a certain way many, many times. And there was a, w- a way of doing it, and there was a way of not doing it. He wanted to do the way that was not doing it. But we did it that way. Um, I've always been quite pliable. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to fight him about it. So we shot it that way, and then I remember later on seeing it and thinking how remarkable it was. And it was a very, it was a very big turning point for me, and a very good learning point for me. Because this direct, the, the director was, was very new to, to what he was doing. And um, it, was, it was very educational for me, because I, I, I realised that just because it's not your idea <laughs> doesn't mean it's not a good one. And just because it's an idea, you know, some of the, the great ideas come from, you know, come from that point. And it was just, it was just a very interesting point for me in, in the way I worked, you know, not being over-encumbered by what you'd seen or what you always be welcome to a fresh opinion. Isn't it that thing also as well? People say when you're younger, you feel there's less at stake. You feel you have... There is that sense you have less to risk. Yeah, I think in general with everything. I, I yeah. think with everything, you yeah. know, and the way you live your life as well. If you're uh, thinking of doing a strobe sequence, we, we conducted all sorts of uh, tests with strobe lights. They're, they're very difficult to photograph a strobe effect because particularly if you're shooting digitally, you, you get a lot of um, rolling shutter artefacts. They're, they're very technical. I mean, I'm talking technical. But um, they're very difficult to achieve. So, what, what in the end, the best way to do it was just to film it all and then put the black frames in. So, if you're ever doing a strobe, that's just it's just a very simple way of doing it. And that's and then you you have uh, the edit possibilities are endless. And so you with, literally insert you just inserted you black. just insert the black frames, yeah. Uh, and that that turned and it was such an obvious idea when we we're doing it. With, uh, we did all these strobe effects that we could get in the right time. We're getting. You know, but even on the, on the film cameras, you'd get the, you know you'd photograph half the shutter and the movement. It's very hard to you couldn't sync them to the camera. Most strobe yeah. lights won't sync to a camera. You can't drive a strobe light, or you can. There are strobes that are designed to do that, but they're designed to expose every time you take a picture. They're not <laughs> designed to give you black frames. So, so, so in a way, that was the easy way to do it. That was Nicholas Cage's first day on the set. <laughs> um, and I remember, so we started off. So we had an animatronic. Dummy strapped to the chair with uh, with real fire, so he was articulated. I mean, doing this, and we set him on fire, and then um, and then we put and we, the cameras are locked off. And then we put Nicholas in the in the chair, and uh, I lit him with a fire effect, and then the the flames obviously put on by visual effects. But <laughs> we did we did the first take, and we cut them. <laughs> I think Matthew's comment was, that was good, Nicholas, but I think the dummy was better. <laughs> and Matthew doesn't have that sort of filter. I just remember Nicholas's face was slightly confused. Um, I was surprised from Nicholas Cage's reputation that he didn't just say, oh, no, no, it's fine, set me on fire. I can no, no, he, no, he, no, he just said, oh, let's go again. 
<laughs> I'll be better. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's how we did it. So the, the construct of that was, is a lot simpler than it seems. Although, um, and I'm just trying to think, what, what would, do we see before that? Yeah, Stardust. Yeah. You were saying about the, the, the witch's lair. Uh, Stardust, yeah, is an interesting one, because I, I don't want to talk particularly about that film or, or the design of that film. I mean, again, that film was shot anamorphic film. Um, um, one particular thing, which, you know, I, this is a, sort of calling out to cinematographers in the audience, um, that I came, you know, that, that it was a difficult film in post for me, uh, Stardust, and, and, and it hasn't been the only one. Um, it, it, we, we're sort of moving on to the subject of DI now, um, which you'll come across. I mean, DI is a wonderful invention. Please don't uh, misunderstand me on this. I think, you know, the... the would I go, want to go back to a photochemical process and a photochemical print? No, I wouldn't. But the trouble with DI is the, the room and the technology is an open space. And the protocols don't exist within... There are protocols that have existed on set, and the protocol behind the lab grade when it was photochemical was very straightforward. The DP went in, did the grade, the director came in and viewed it, and approved it or didn't. Um, with the DI, it's a very different... And it, and, and it can become very political in a DI. I mean, the, the only reason I, that reminds me of Stardust is with that particular set, uh, we, we'd started off with a, a particular vision for that set. It's a black set, and the witches are wearing dark velvet, and our hero, Mark Strong, is wearing a black leather outfit. You know, and, and it was a dark set, and the, and the whole idea behind it was to create, it was a frightening place, it's a witch's lair. Um, we went into the DI, and I think one of the first comments in the DI, I won't, I won't go into it, was, what you have to understand, Ben, is that the nature of the film has changed, and it, far from being a horrific place, we want it to be bright. And, <laughs> and it was like, oh, really? <laughs> um, now, now, with film... There's only so far you can do that. You know, film, film, you start to push it. You try to elevate and you try to put light into the black areas and, and it will fall apart pretty quickly. And then you start having to really fight. So you lift it up, it gets noisy, you have to denoise it, you have to, you know, and, and, and it's a real battle. Um, with digital, not so much. So, so m what I'm saying, I think, to cinematographers out there is, is the DIs are very, you know, you've really got to how to handle a DI politically in the room and how to keep control. You know, one of the big battles for cinematographers now, I think, is, is to keep authorship or to keep some sort of control over your images from when you wrap production until the film is released. I mean, that includes every process of that. It includes, you know, for instance, recently, there's some films, uh, there's a film that I shot, and I won't go into what it was, but... You know, the, the studio put that film out for a, a certain project. They'd had a bad experience of one projection at a screening they'd had uh, on a film previous to that, so they put that film out allowing for a, a projection level much lower than your normal projection level. So in any normal cinema, the film is going to appear too bright. And that's a decision made after I'm gone. You know, that's a decision made at a very political level up there. So that, I mean, if there is a battlefield of cinematographers now it's in that area. You, you really, you know, and to keep, keep control, particularly now, you know, like, for instance, the next film I'm doing, we're going to shoot on, I believe we're going to shoot 65 Ari, you know, 65 digital. Um, now, obviously, the possibilities with, you know, although it's a great format, it also opens up 
great possibilities to fuck around with it. Excuse my language later on, where you can zoom into it, you know. So I do, I do think that's, that's an area all cinematographers need to look at. You really need to try and keep some sort of control over what you've done. And the, the trouble is, is you're being, you're likely to be paid for two weeks on a DI, on a feature, you know, they'll, they'll get you over two weeks, but really, you need to be involved in, from the minute you finish shooting, there needs to be days involved there where deliverables to visual effects department are being looked at, and, and it's a very difficult process. And also in that room, it can become very difficult. You know, I've been in rooms before where the director's brothers walked in, and the director said, well, what do you think? And he goes, well, it's a bit yellow. And he goes, well, yeah, is it a bit yellow? And you go, <laughs> we've been in there for two weeks. You know, so, so you, you, you know, it is a, it's a real, it's a, it, it, it is an issue. Because the protocols don't, the protocols aren't properly established. You know, the, the film industry, you know, a film set runs on protocols. You know, it's like, Henry VIII's court, if you like. It's like, you know, and there are certain ways, and, 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 it, and the reason it's like that is because it works like that. And unfortunately, the DI, with all these new technologies in the DI, those protocols don't exist properly, or they do exist, but they, you have to fight for them now. That's I was watching um, Ruben Ostlund, some of you might have seen his most recent film, Force Majeure. Um, he made... A a, yeah, it's a great film. He made a, a film about three years ago, a short film, in uh, German, and it's something like the uh, robbery at a bank, and it's a single shot, 15 minutes long, and it shows this bungled robbery, um, and then it shows the guys coming out trying to escape, and they don't escape, and the police stop them, and it all happens in one single shot. And when I was talking to him about it, he said, no, we, it, it was this ultimate high-def camera. Um, it's a static camera. It didn't zoom in. We just zoomed, in, zoomed into various points of the frame, so you think you're moving around. In actual fact, all you have is a single static image, and you're moving yeah. around. And he talked about having a grid and actually grading little yeah. squares of making it look different. And it, it just strikes me that if you're working on a film and then it goes to the editor and to the director, do you think increasingly it's going to become more of a problem? Mm. Well, I mean, what you're talking about there is that you're touching on what is possibly, I mean, not probably in my lifespan, but is probably the future of filmmaking, or possibly could be, where films would be shot like that. I'm not saying it'd be one camera, it'd be multiple cameras placed. It's almost like they do when they capture, when they're capturing, uh, sort of when we did Groot, or when you do, you're doing motion capture work, so you have multiple cameras placed. You know, and that could possibly be the way, let's hope not, because (laughs) it would be a, a sad day, but, but where films are made like that. Where multiple cameras will be placed, the actors will, and and the images and the shots will be created from having a three D model of that scene, and then all decisions will be made at a later date, you know, in the post process. So but that is a possibility. That's one of the pleasures of watching uh, that sequence from Guardians is mm. that normally every summer blockbuster we watch is sort of whiz bang of lots of cuts, and right in this sequence you have a static shot mm. and everything happens within the frame. I was curious. Was it a tough thing to fight for, or was no, that just no? No, that was that was uh, a decision made very early on. In that, that the thing about Guardians, it was uh, of all the films I've ever. I, I don't think there's been a film as in, sort of microscopically planned as that film was, in terms of every shot and every scenario and every lighting, 
set up and every it was yeah it, it was one it was a film that was made like that you know I, and that film needed to be made like that if you look at that I mean that set that we saw originally in Rodgers is actually that's a complete set up to the top of that tower it's only when you tilt right up that you know and that was built out of steel because it had to support all those actors up there every they were something like twenty thousand light cues all back to dimmers and everything it was it, 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 the the construct of that scene is far greater than it looks to the eye, you know, of all of that. You know, and it was planned out in advance. Um, particularly in terms of lighting, I, I like to... The thing, the thing with a film like that and with sets like that, you, you, you're generally going to be given... You'll be give, so a set like that one, The Kiln, which is the prison, you'll be, get, you'll be presented with a, a concept drawing of what that set should be and then you'll be presented with a floor plan and a stage plan and then elevations. And on that, you, because these decisions have to be made for budgetary reasons and for rigging, but pre, so a lot of that pre-rigging will have to go up, a lot of the rigging for that set will have to go up before the set is even constructed, because the set's going to be in the way <laughs> of you getting your lights up there. So a lot of it will have to go up before. So on that piece of paper, you're going to have to plan your lighting strategy and where your lamp's going to be and what lamp you want to use. Now, for me, I know there are, there are some DPs who don't, who will pass that off to a gaffer and say, I need soft light here, but, but I like to be very much involved in that process. I like to sit down with that stage plan. I want to draw in what lights I want and where I want them, and I have a not, enough knowledge of those lights to know what they're going to give me. So I will look at that and say, well, what I want is this exposure, and I'm going to put these lamps here. And that, that's something that you, a skill you need to acquire on a film like that, because that will then go into budget, you know, and then you won't see that set, and then you'll come back to that set, it'll be complete, and those lights will be rigged, and you better hope damn well they're going to do what you want them to do, you know. So, so I, I, I'm a big believer, and I don't like to do that on a computer, I still like to work with a, a stage plan and a pencil and a ruler. Let's go uh, with a clip from another... Oh, yes, sure. Yeah. Um, so, having pre-planned these big sets so intensely... Yeah. What happens on set if the blocking might change the way that an actor's moving? So um, having pre-planned what happens? Yeah, I've got. Oh, so you're yeah. the what happens with with blocking? Well, generally, when I light a set, the way I tend to work, it doesn't matter whether it's a a small room or a big room. Well, one of the someone once said to me, I think it's very true, is big window, big light, small window, big light. But um, you you you. Um, <laughs> You know, no matter what happens, I, you know, I, um, I will light. Out, so I tend to rig a lot up there to allow for that. Particularly on a film like that, you would put what you need up there. So if I, I want to know that wherever they go, I, I have the right tools in place to cover that. And I, and I don't, what, whatever the set is, I don't like there to be lamps on the floor. When the, when there'll be lamps on the floor once you start, but when you walk in and you block out and you've got your actors there. I, the director need. I mean, I'm a big believer. Is you light the space. So if you got, if you put the light through the window, you let the the space light itself, and let the actors move and they move away from the window. Then they move away from the window. There's darkness there. For there to be light, there needs to be darkness. So you, a very a big believer in that is not don't light for the scene, light for the space, and keep the floor clear, because you you really when you want when you walk onto that set and you want to block out, you don't want there to be a load of equipment. You need a clean floor. Completely. So, whenever you, whenever I walk onto a location, my immediate thought is, where am I going to rig? How how do I get lights up there, out of shot? 
you know, even if I walk onto someone's living room, I've got to shoot in there. All right, where do I put lights that they're not going to be in shot? Where can I put my lights? That's the first thing. And what about something like Avengers um, Age of Ultron, where you're working on an enormous scale, um, and unlike Guardians, where you're in an enclosed environment, you're out of doors and having to create this reality? Yeah, um... Well, the thing about Avengers is, is, is Avengers is a ground-based. You know, it, it, it's a real place with people who are in costume <laughs> and, and have got yeah. superpowers. You know, so you're not trying to create. Another, you know, Guardians is far more challenging because you're trying to. With Guardians, you're trying to create another world. You know, that no one's seen before, and also that world has to exist in the future. So normal light fixtures can't be used. You know, you, they have to work within that environment. So you couldn't have a bare bulb, you know, so you had to, and, and whereas if you're outside with the Avengers, you let the, you, you'd light it like you'd light any other exterior, the only thing extraordinary about it is that you have these characters within it, and that's, I think the idea with something like Avengers is it's not, it's not, it's not a space, it's, it's, yeah. it's supernatural characters in a real environment, so you, if anything, you work the other way, you keep the environment as real as you can, and put those characters within it, and then it becomes more extraordinary. So it's the vice versa, really. Franklin, which has made a few years ago, and in a way does a similar thing that the reality of everyday London, it sort of crosses over into this sort yeah. of fictional fantasy world. You've got the voiceover that sort of carries us across four separate storylines, mm. um, but there's also the visual element of it, that we, there's this sort of similarity at different points in time with this fantasy world. Um, could you talk about how you sort of develop that and also working... Um, with a new director or new future director, and that sort of yeah. excitement and the risks they take. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Gerald is a really talented filmmaker, so uh, that that was an issue, and, and yeah. we, we were and still are very great friends. So that that was easy. I mean, the thing about something like Franklin and 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 with a lot of films is you've got so you have there were four disparate worlds within it, uh, and four main characters, all with different character arcs that come together at the end. Um, the thing about with films like that is, is you need you need them all to have a different visual journey, but you also need them to be part of the same film. You know, you can you can go. I think you can go wrong with that, where the worlds become so far removed from each other. So you have to tie them together in some way. So what I so in terms of design and lighting, they were very different. But in terms of the way we moved the camera, we tried to unify things with that aspect, in the way the shots were constructed, and the way the camera moved. We try to tie them together. Because I do, I do think you need to tie when you have films like that. And, and there are many films like that, where you have these different words that come to it. So, so it's, not, it's, it's a, a well-known sort of storytelling device. But I, I think the important thing with that is to try and put them together um, in some way. Some, there has to be some coherent thing between all the disparate elements at some point. And it doesn't matter what that is. That could be lighting, that could be colour, that could be design. That, but you need to have something that unifies them. We've had um, makeup artists and costume designers before, and they said the hardest or the biggest challenge for them is to actually represent everyday life and make it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that, that's, uh, yeah, I'm probably prepared for that question. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but everyday life is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I... There's nothing. I I think. Well, make people right, believe if, in it. All right. If well. we're talking visually, yeah. There's an interesting thing about being in the right 
it's being in the right place at the right time, which is for any sort of location work. That's your that is where you've got to be, and that's what you've got to try and achieve. I think uh, you know where the, where's the sum? When do you want to be there? When you pick your location, you've got to be involved in the locations from the very beginning. You know, when they're looking out locations, you want to get there. You want to be there. A lot of times, if I'm in prep on a movie, spend time at your locations. Be beyond. That's your best. A lot of times, when I did my first film in prep, I got there. And they said, "Right, well, you've got six weeks." And I remember sitting, getting in the office, sitting at a desk, and going, <laughs> "What do I do now?" Um, but I think you know that would be my best advice: is if you've got location work, get there, look at it. Uh, different times of the day, find out what the best time to be there. That is a scene, also that is a scene <coughs> which you'll come across, which, you know, you'll, you'll come across in scripts all the time, which is twilight or dawn, and it'll be three pages of <laughs> and you're on. There's a day, you know, so, so, you know, and they'll always be there, in every script you're given, there'll be one of those, you know, I, I can always guarantee it. And, you know, you, that, that, that's a battle, and the only way really to do that is you have to you have to shoot at the right time, and you have to commit to that idea that you're going to put the cameras there, you're going to shoot it, and then when it, the light's gone, the light's gone. Um, and that takes a commitment uh, by your director, by your producers, you, you know, and you might say, well, we'll go there for two twilights and do it. But, but you know, those scenes, and I'm saying that the thing is, it's very easy in the pre-production to say, well, why don't we just make it day? But don't, my my well don't you know because if you can do it, I mean Chris Mangus is who I'm a big fan of. It's great with that you know. Um, if you look at any of his films, he's always in the right place at the right time, pointing the camera the right way, and that's the secret. That's the secret to it, really. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, one element that obviously you can't control is the weather, and I have to, my mm. my question is primarily about the use of natural light against artificial light, and how do you challenge that? And also, with weather, for example, because it's like say on um, I think on Braveheart, John Todd talked about the challenges with the rain, because rain doesn't photograph like real rain. Could you explain a bit more about you? Give an example there. It says twilight, so of case you've done all this preparation, and all of a sudden. Damn, we've got to shoot yeah. it in thunder and stuff like that. Do you? How do you improvise? Well, I'll no, just repeat. It's, it's just no, natural light versus artificial light, and how do you deal with weather? Yeah, uh, you know, it's always an issue. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, ideally, you come back do it again. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, the thing is, the problem is in all those areas is continuity. I mean, w one thing you'll find very difficult is, you know, natural. You know, if you if say you're in the sunlight and bang, it's gone. Recreating that is going to be a big challenge because it's very hard to do. You know, in anything more than a sort of mid shot, you're going to really struggle to get that to work um, unless you've got the budget to do it. I mean, even then, it's a look. You know, if you try to create something, it, it, it's very difficult to do. I, I I don't really have any advice with that. I mean, you. I mean, I have shot films, and I, I you know, I'm, I look at them now, and I go, oh, where literally you shoot one direction, and the sun is shining in the other way, and it's cloudy, and almost, and it looks like it's about to rain, uh, and one day it's beautiful blue, and one direction it's beautiful blue skies, but they cut together, and for me, when I see it, I'm like, oh! but uh, but most audience that will go and see it will will um, will get through that, you know, <laughs> um, if the if what they're looking at is interesting enough, you know, and 
And you, I mean, you, I could show you loads of films where they're constantly cutting between. Some, I mean, films that have won Oscars. I can show you that. You know, there's when uh, a river runs through it. I think yeah. there's a there's a scene in that which is twilight in one direction or daylight in the other. One, both are backlit, and, uh, but it works. See, the, the one that always gets me the um, shot at the very end of Blade Runner, where Rutger. Um, Rutger has the, the dove in his hand and he lets go and the dove flies up in the air and it's, it's blue sky and yet it's just been pissing down for the last ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing about that is that they're, they're, the thing, my philosophy uh, philosophy about weather, you know, and, and it's constantly going, oh, the weather forecast for tomorrow. I, I really, tr- there are so many things to sort of worry about and get stressed about and the weather is so out of our control that whenever that happens, I just go, I think, you know, I'm powerless in this situation. You know, and there there does come a time. You know, I mean, what what I love as a DP, and which across all the time, where you'll shoot one when it's and then and it'll start chucking it down with rain, and I guarantee you, a producer will come and say, well, do, do you think can't we just shoot one this cut? And, and, you're, <laughs> and you, you know, he's looking at it, and, and you're thinking, well, is he serious? <laughs> can't have, can't we just light this? And you, think, well, no. you know, and you're looking down the whole street. You know, you will always get a naive comment like that. And, I think you just have to be brutally frank about it. You know, so you can shoot it. I've never stood there and said, you can't shoot. No, if you want to shoot, you can shoot. But you know, you will have to, you'll have to deal with it later. We've just got under 10 minutes left. We've got far too many clips to show for the whole. But are there any other questions that's, at this point? Yeah, if you shout out, please. Well, going back to some of the, obviously, the effects-heaviest stuff you're doing and some of the stuff you were saying about diminishing role of the DP, possibly, as everything's being controlled <coughs> and sort of pre-scripted and pre-visualised. I mean, um, obviously there are directors who are trying to bring some of the DP sort of, and the director sort of auteurship back again with like virtual sets and like James Cameron and his virtual camera work. Um, do you ever see yourself getting more into that? Um, I have done. I mean, with Avengers, we did a lot of work with those systems. I find them difficult. You know, we we had a virtual set. You know, I could literally, well, be, would you want to have a look around the set? And they'd build it, and it was a... You held it like this, and literally you could walk around the set, which wasn't built yet. Did I find it beneficial? No, quite frankly, no. I, I don't think it taught me anything. I mean, we, we it's very good. We did a... There's a, a fight sequence in Avengers between two characters that don't exist, the Hulk and the Hulk Buster. And there too, but we had a system out there, and I, I think it's Weta, uh, it's the it was the Weta system, where you could literally, in a camera, through the viewfinder in the camera, you could frame the shots up and operate them, and the characters, because they'd been, the sequence had already been constructed in visual effects, you could frame up on the characters moving through the space uh, with the camera, even though they're not there. So it would tell you where to frame the camera, you know, which is... Which is that was just genius. <laughs> you know? And I, I, I have no idea how they did it. I was just like, I'd look for it and go, well, and the character would run across. So I'd be on an f- empty street like this, and I'd look for the, the viewfinder, and the Hulk would run down the street, and I'd pan with him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, that was incredible. Uh, so those technologies are great. So that, in that instance, it was very useful. Um, some of it, you know, it, I find it very hard to work in that space. If someone gives me a a set drawing in SketchUp, which is a computer 3D model. I find it very hard to work within that. Um, yes, I like the idea. Oh, I go down and look, what do I see through this doorway? But do I find it? I mean, I can 
see that on a stage plan. I don't need a 3D model to do it, and I don't particularly find that helpful. Someone else had their hand up. Yep. Um, the scene we watched, uh, the kick-ass scene, scene uh, is one of my favourites ever. And did you, was it pre-visualised, all the different kind of, um, you know, filming styles you use there with the, you know, first-person, you know, computer sort of uh, shooting and... Uh, no, that was, there was no previs on that at all, no. Um, it was just a sort of a set of ideas. Um, I have to say, the first person idea, that was Matthew's idea. He said, I want to shoot it like a first person video game. Because he, he, he loves video games. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, so he showed me, so I want it to look like this. And I think we watched him. He was, had Call of Duty. So, and, and, and we thought, yeah, good. And, and the strobe thing... The strobe thing came because um, the strobe idea came because there's a there's an armaments company to all the arms for for film work and they brought in lots of guns because a lot of guns involved in that film so they added like a display of guns and they were showing the they were showing us the latest technologies and these were the strobe lights which are supposed to disorientate people before you shoot them um, <laughs> um, and that's where that idea kind of came from. So, so it was an idea that evolved during the thing, and then, and then it was a combination of first and second unit shot that sequence, uh, and and on that as also, if you look at that sequence again, you see it's very, very well edited. John Harris was the editor; he's a really fine editor. So you know, you give him all those pieces, and he'll put that together for you. Yeah, and then we'll come here. Um, you've talked a lot about the higher budget filmmaking stuff. Um, your next film is Doctor Strange, and it's, that's got very famously like odd kind of psychedelic visuals. How are you planning to kind of capture that? On so your next project is Doctor Strange, which yeah is lots of psychedelic visuals. How do you yeah, deal with that? Um, well, I I don't actually start on that till next week, <laughs> um, but I have been in lots of the. I mean, Doctor Strange is an interesting one because it it, it was um, the comments of pre conceived in sort of late 60s, 70s, so it has a very psychedelic grounding, and um, and most of, it, it's not your typical Marvel action movie, most of the work within it is about other dimensions, um, and I, I described it, um, I think when I was talking to Marvel, as sort of Marvel's Fantasia, in a way, because it's so sort of out there and different from everything else they've done. I don't know if they really embraced that. Um, but that's what I thought. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not, you know, I've signed an NDA, I'm not really allowed to talk about it that much. Um, but uh, I'm going to handle that. There's a lot of pre-visualisation for that because there's a lot of work which is very hard. You look at it and you, I see the, the imagery they've created for it. And I think, well, how the hell do we shoot that? Because it's sort of Escher stuff. And it's all very out there. Um, but I can't really say much more about it, I'm afraid. Um, but it, but it, I, I think it'll be really interesting. And um, it's a very dark movie, I'm pleased to say. Camera, uh, DPs, uh, I, I don't know, all the DPs in the audience, but I always love the word. I love dark. <laughs> Unfortunately, when not many other... And trouble is that... Most producers don't like dark. Well, <laughs> mostly you get into DI and people don't seem to like dark anymore. But um, that's uh, one of yep. those.
I was just curious, I'm really impressed with the breadth of your work as far as different genres, and I mean, you're saying you like dark, but clearly you shoot a lot of comedies. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how you choose your projects and also how you avoid getting pigeonholed? How do you choose your projects and avoid getting pigeonholed? Um, that's different. Uh, in a way, I have been slightly pigeonholed. <laughs> so, um, if you look at there's a lot of comic book stuff on there, isn't there? I was aware of that the other day. You know, Wrath of the Titans is basically a comic book in a way, but a very old one. Um, uh, yeah, there is a breadth. Well, I don't. It's it sort of come to me really that I've chosen it. You know, I chose projects that interest me. Uh, I try to have a balance, and I have a, a wonderful agent who helps me with that. Um, and I tried to balance between, like immediately after doing Doctor Strange, for instance, I would definitely try and seek out something which is very, which is not visual effects or action based, and is about storytelling, um, because I like to have a balance between the two. But they both, but all the genres in, interest me. I, I think, um, you know, there are favourite genres that we'd like to do. I love thrillers. Um, I think romantic comedies are something that I probably would avoid in the future, you know. But, but uh, yeah, I try to keep it diverse, but I don't think that's... A, it's not something I've naturally set out to do. But my, ground, my grounding work was in commercials. And it, it, in, in a day which... You know, when I was doing commercials, it was a very sort of golden period for commercials. And you... Every day, on every couple of days you do on it, it would always, they'd always be very different. And I, so I think you learn to lend your hand to whatever, you know, and they all interest me. I, I go and see all types of films, so I like going to see action films with my kids, and I like going to see slightly, you know, more intellectual material. Your clips we haven't had the chance to screen The Debt, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which certainly isn't based on a graphic novel. Um, Tomorrow Drew, which Actually. is... <laughs> no, Tomorrow Drew, you see, that's another e comic. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Seven Psychopaths, the, the opening sequence, what attracted you to Seven Psychopaths? Uh, Martin Madonna, because I think he's a genius. And the script, he sent me the script, and it was, I think it's the best thing I've ever read. I really think he's a genius, <laughs> um, and he's writing. It just—I uh, I read the script on an aeroplane, and I think I laughed the entire way through the journey on the aeroplane. Uh, it, it's just, yeah, uh, and the cast. Mm. Who wouldn't want to work with Christopher Walken and mm. Sam Rockwell and Tom Waits? <laughs> you know, who wouldn't want to Fair do enough. that? And Colin Farrell. You know, who wouldn't want to work with all of those people? You know. So yeah, it, and. Uh, I have to say, in my experience, it's probably my, the most enjoyable film I've ever made. Only because every day was fun. And then and Sam Rockwell was just, yeah. I, I mean, that's the great thing about working with great actors. I mean, I, I do think that's a privilege every day when I go to work. Is sometimes You sit there and you look through the lens, and when you get someone great in front of it, you are, you've got the best seat in the house, you know? And you're watching... And with Sam Rockwell, you never knew what he was going to do. He'd walk out, he'd always shoot the rehearsal. And it was always brilliant. <laughs> and it, it would always have me, you know, in hysterics by the guy. You know, the biggest problem was you'd have to lock the camera off because it'd be shaking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, and I think that's a privilege. I mean, not just in terms of Sam making me laugh, but working, you know. Yeah, the film, I, I, I've just finished a film called Genius, um, directed by Michael Grandage, which is a a story about friendship between two men, basically, based set in the 1930s in New York. But um, great actors. 
giving great performances and I'm sitting there this far from them. Yeah, it's a privilege. If um, you want to find out about the next BAFTA Masterclass, um, please do look on the Picture House website and also go to the BAFTA website. Thank you to BAFTA and Picture House for organising this, but most of all, can you please join me in thanking Ben Davis. Thank you.